So this was to basically divide knowledge up into portions and to take it around and to use it. In a way, you know, the analogy of, of these manuals for now is the handy rather than the internet. Science Social, a podcast series about how science, history and society connect with and add to the big questions that we all have today. This show is created by the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. My name's Stephanie Hood, and in each episode, I'm joined by guests from our institute to talk about their research, their big questions, and some of the weird and wonderful experiences they've had along the way. We are sat here at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science today with our masks on, so I hope you can hear us okay. And, and if you hear any birds outside or anything, then it's because we have the windows wide open. I'm just glad it's not snowing anymore because we would be cold. So I'm here today with Elaine Leong and Matthias Gorter to talk handbooks and manuals. Um, turns out there's a lot to discuss. Um, Elaine Leong is a lecturer in history at University College London and visiting scholar at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. And her research focuses on medical and scientific knowledge transfer and production. Matthias Gorter is a historian of science and Heisenberg fellow at the Humboldt Universität zu Berlin. He's working on the history and philosophy of the life sciences with an emphasis on microbial classifications and the role of ancient knowledge. Okay, so to get started, I wanted to, this is kind of almost predictable, um, since we are sitting here with our masks on um, to start on the topic of the COVID-19 pandemic. If you think about the coronavirus pandemic, we're learning a lot of things in a very short amount of time, both thinking about our sort of day-to-day -day routines and also as in terms of scientific knowledge. Do you think that this could all end up in manuals at one point? Maybe it already has. So, for example, advice such as how to stay positive in a lockdown or how to bake sourdough bread or how to develop and produce an mRNA vaccine. Um, yeah, um, that's that's a great question. There, there are actually lots of manual-like things around in this uh, pandemic. And just this morning, I looked up one thing, namely the nasal swab. Uh, that is done anywhere nowadays, and people haven't done it a year before, and nobody practically knew how to do this except for medical practitioners. And now it's not only nurses, but people working in a kindergarten, teachers, and everybody who has to do this at certain points. So if you go on YouTube, you find what probably was a manual before, namely um, short videos explaining you how to do this. And it's quite interesting to see the sheer amount and diversity of these videos. There are, of course, some that are very clinical and aseptic. Then there are others that are cartoons made for children. And the interesting thing is, of course, that this is all online and it's not written now and it's mostly in images and accessible through the internet. I think one of the reasons we have so many videos is that the idea of per like first-hand observational and personal experiences are really important. That's really interesting. For some reason, I've got now in my head this whole thing with the mask and I've definitely seen these kind of meme type diagram things floating around I don't know, probably Twitter or something where they're like, this is how not to wear your mask. And it's just about like 10 different ways, like under the nose, over the nose, over the eyes. It's like a whole new bunch of stuff to learn. And maybe there's another example that gets a little bit closer to actual science. Um, if you look uh, into um, the internet, you find that there are huge COVID libraries on all the preprints and articles. Of course, we know that there are probably thousands of them appearing every day and nobody keeps track of this. 
And that's where people will certainly at some point want something like a, a handbook maybe that tells them where to find what article, how to categorize them, how they are interconnected, to critically discuss them one against the other. So it shows you that in these moments where there's new knowledge accumulating, the demand for systematization and these kind of things is, is automatically developing as well. All of this information, the way it's all kind of moving around, this seems like something that wouldn't have happened in earlier pandemics, so such as the Spanish flu or the plague. Did people use manuals then, or how did they get information about dealing with with the pandemic situation? There were definitely um, definitely manuals for dealing with the plague. Um, so particularly by the 16th, 17th century, when there was a lot of vernacular popular medical printing across Europe, you have a whole variety of manuals to deal with the plague. They're of different lengths, they're geared towards diverse audiences. Some of them are like broadsheets, some of them are short pamphlets, some of them are written in prose, and I was reading one that was written in verse. And they normally cover the 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 author's idea of causes for the plague. They tell readers how to recognize the plague by reading the body and signs on the body. And they also talk a little bit about prevention and cure. And they are now proved to be some of the key sources to studying popular understandings of the plague um, as articulated by historical actors. So it'll be interesting to know whether, I guess, what kinds of sources future historians will use to study popular understandings of COVID. Would they be using Instagram posts or would they be using newspapers or pamphlets issued by the WHO? Um, so we have talked about pandemics and about all of this information that's out there what actually are handbooks and manuals though um it's a really broad question what's their purpose what is their purpose of handbooks and manuals yeah it's a it's a it's a big uh, and and tricky question of course because uh, people do kind all kinds of things with books right sometimes they even sit on them <laughs> or they they use them as weights yeah. <laughs> for something <laughs> so um of course one has to differentiate between the intended use and the abuse, if you will. But um, if we look into the histories of the papers that uh, we have, of course, portability is the key issue, I would say. Portability connected to practice, right? And um, the need of this is obvious in, in, in all kinds of fields. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to do with science. It can also relate, of course, to personal instruction. It can relate to belief. It can relate to any sort of practical activity. And it is, if you will, also related to becoming independent of person-to-person -person transmission, right? Because the usual instruction if, would be that you have a master and an apprentice, and you learn things by looking and by redoing. And to have a different layer on top of this, of uh, making the knowledge mobile of allowing it to, to be transported to different corners of the world, that's where such uh, written instructions uh, come into place. Do you actually have some favorite handbooks or manuals of your own? Yes, I was looking at that, actually. So for my last book, when I was thinking about recipes and everyday knowledge, um, I looked at lots and lots of domestic manuals. And my hands down, the favorite one I looked at is called The Experienced Market Man and Woman, 
or profitable instructions to all masters and mistresses of families. And it was printed in Edinburgh in 1699. And it's a shopping guide. It tells you how to buy all kinds of provisions and um, food items from markets. So it tells you how to identify a good turkey, how to ensure that the eggs you bought are not rotten. Um, and it tells you right at the end how to buy different kinds of fruits. And particularly now, I think this is quite helpful because there are lots of pears and apples available in supermarkets. So um, the market guide instructs you that if you pull the stalks out of pears or apples and the stalks come out without breaking, then this particular fruit is rotten to the core. So please don't buy that. Um, and I think that these kinds of instructions, uh, and, and this is this is actually um, a manual dated, gosh, that must be 400 years ago. And it still offers instructions and advice that's useful to our everyday lives now. And I think this is this kind of explains a little bit also why we find it so interesting and spent so much time to look at manuals and handbooks. Uh, that's a great anecdote. I'm also quite tempted to try that out. I think I'm going to get myself thrown out of Edeka. Okay, this is fascinating. And it also uh, brings me really well to my next question that I wanted to ask you both. Um, the reason we decided that we wanted to to speak with you for our podcast was that you recently um, published this volume, uh, Learning by the Book, um, which is a British Journal for the History of Science volume. This is a new volume that is edited by Angela Krieger, Matthias Grota and Elaine Leong. Um, an open access volume, so you can actually get all of the articles online. What interested you in about about this topic, and what actually led to you deciding to to create a whole new volume about this? The project is actually really long-standing, and it was started by Matthias and Angela because they shared common interest in looking at instructional materials in the history of twentieth-century biology. Angela Krieger, perhaps I should throw in a little thing here. So Angela Krieger is the co-editor of your volume Learning by the Book and she's currently a fellow at the Wissenschaftskolleg in Berlin and also a professor at Princeton. We had the idea, well, or the question dawned upon us that it's not so easy what the concept of this even is and we need uh, we need to think about this transhistorically and in different times and then we were very happy that Elaine was working here uh, with her Minerva group uh, at the MPI, and uh, she was interested in early modern uh, handbooks and manuals. And uh, that's how the group uh, found together. And I think that we all share a, a strong interest in trying to understand practices outside formal settings, kind of popular and vernacular practices. And we thought that by looking at manuals and handbooks, this would be a really good entryway to understand how knowledge was passed informally between people who um, may not be expert. One of the things or what really inspired me to want to to do this podcast with you and to learn more about manuals and handbooks in the history of science and more broadly was just looking through this volume and seeing the breadth of all the different topics that you cover. I mean, you go from the ancient period through to the 20th century. You cover so many different disciplines. There's mathematics, there's alchemy, there's the chemistry and life sciences, there's architecture, you've got genetics here, the natural sciences, and you cover so many different places as well. I mean, What's fascinating here is not just the the extent of time that handbooks and manuals have been going, but also the the fact that they were so many places um, and cover so many different topics. 
this isn't just interesting to look at from a historical perspective, I think, but also to connect to to some of the phenomena that we see today. So I wanted to talk a bit about um, the early modern age and citizen science. So Elaine, with your research, you can almost time travel us back to a family in early modern London who, who kind of expanded the handbook that they had. Can you describe this case a bit for us? Yes, absolutely. So for one of the projects that I'm doing, I am looking at um, a distillation handbook that was printed in the 1650s. And it was translated by a man called John French. And there is this absolutely amazingly wonderful copy at the Welcome Collection, which has the annotations of the Ptolemy family from the 1730s. Once they owned the book, they began to annotate throughout the entire book. They wrote herbal information, not only in the 140 blank pages that they bound into the back of the book, but around the printed text on many, many of the pages of the book. And here the story is fascinating because you have a set of instructions that are designed to um, for an artisanal workshop to distill particular waters or medicines, how to make glassware and how to make furnaces um, that are then adopted by a household. And they inserted a lot of information such as recipes or herbal knowledge that they gathered from family and friends and from other printed books. So in a way, it's about um, how a household customized or personalized a set of printed knowledge to suit their everyday um, household medical and culinary activities. I mean, this kind of actually the addition of, of information was something I wanted to talk about because Verena mentioned this and we were talking about this a few days ago where she was sort of said, I'm absolutely horrified to think of people writing in the margins of these books. Like, I would never do that. I personally do. <laughs> I mean, the fact that all of this information was getting added to these already printed books. Can you tell us any more about that? I mean, so historically, this idea that we're not allowed to write in books is relatively recent. And historians of reading such as William Sherman have written about this, that it came with the public library, that we began to really privilege um books as precious objects and we're told not to write into the margins of books. And in fact, if you go back to the early modern period, which is the period I know best, um, readers were trained to read with some sort of writing instrument in hand. But another really interesting case study, which I think to do with annotations, um, that I think Matthias is probably better place to talk about, is of course Stefan and Guadita's case study on Mandel. Yeah, e yeah, exactly. Thanks. It's a paper on uh, Mandel's, uh, Gregor Mendel's uh, classic uh, paper on crossing experiments in genetics. And uh, what they show us is in how far these uh, writings um, that you find in different editions of this text in the margins can be used as sources. So this is also another interesting dimension to this, uh, that if we think we shouldn't be writing to the margins, maybe this can be beneficial to later historians, at least. So what they do is to, to really show the, the mental process that happens or that occurs when people read and how they retrained or trained themselves with a book in hands, right? So this brings us back to one of the primordial situations of a handbook or a manual, that it's self-teaching, that people sit down with this book and they think like, oh, I want to learn uh, about this problem or about this technique. And we really also see how people, of course, 
don't get to grips with it. They cannot see the point in the first moment or they try to modify uh, something. There are calculation errors that, pe that people find or things that are crossed out. So this is, for a historian, of course, a, a fascinating source that you can go into something that's not uh, explicitly made for publication, but that documents uh, really the process of learning, studying, and of uh, using text to instruct yourself. I mean, you kind of talk about all of this, this, this marginalia, these things that get written inside the books for the purpose of self, um, self-teaching. Can you see any kind of connection then to what today we might call citizen science, this accumulation of knowledge from many different people? The, the idea of self-teaching and the idea of people expanding and adding to knowledge is demonstrative of a popularization of science and an openness of um, the different kinds of actors who can participate in knowledge making. And I, I guess maybe it paved the way for more structured and formal citizen science, which we have nowadays. I mean, when I think of citizen science, I think of maybe bird banding or all the movements where people are going out to test um, water quality. So in that sense, the early annotations have a slightly different bent because they are about accumulation. They are about expanding bodies of knowledge. But I don't think that the annotators were consciously and in a structured way contributing to large-scale research projects, which is, I think, more what citizen science is yeah. um, nowadays. Perhaps. So maybe a precursor. Um, yeah. Somehow I, this is thing making me think of Wikipedia um, a little bit, which actually brings me to the next question that I wanted to ask you about the internet. The internet and digital, digitization are really changing our ways of learning. What to you are the most prominent or most exciting developments in your eyes in terms of the amount of information that that people can get from the internet compared to what they might have got from handbooks and manuals either in the 20th century or in the early modern period. With Wikipedia, the fascinating thing and also the difficult thing is that anybody can add to it. And all these, uh, these structures that were put into place for uh, printed handbooks, namely editors and publishers and, and so on, they don't exist in the format as we know it. Of course, there are people editing Wikipedia and, and things are read, but we know about edit wars of people writing back and forth against each other. And we know about sites that uh, Wikipedia articles that are paid for. Not that things like that wouldn't have happened in print, but um, that's, I think, where we are faced with a with an open uh, and rapidly developing situation that people are adapting to and that people are also trying to uh, find solutions to. And um, maybe that's, an, that's a point for us to reflect on the, on the history, on, on the printed books and so on. Uh, not that one can directly uh, take the solutions and implant them into the digital world, but but maybe one could learn about uh, certain processes and certain structures and certain similarities or dissimilarities of these developments. Actually, this somehow reminds me a little bit of the conversation that we had actually with, with Angela Krieger when we were talking about doing this podcast um, Verena, who is doing our recording at the moment, asked if the internet might be considered the modern equivalent of the handbook. And Angela Krieger's response was that maybe the cell phone would be a better analogy in a way. Why, why would that be? Because it's handy, I think. 
I also think that now there are apps for everything, aren't they? And so many apps in a way are like manuals because they offer kind of practical instructional information um, that's broken down into easily digestible and easily searchable segments. Yes, absolutely. And there's maybe another uh, layer to this that could be added is that uh, if we think about the aesthetics of mobile devices and the status they have, um, that people keep them actually very close to their bodies, uh, that people like to buy their personal version of it or customize it. Then there's also an analogy to these books that were called, for example, Vademecum, uh, so Go With Me in, in, uh, in the earlier times, uh, that also had, they weren't only containers uh, of information, but they were personalized objects. I thought it would be interesting to ask how can we compare the rise of the internet and new devices with print and print revolution further back, say, in the 15th century? I think both of these made um, knowledge more accessible for a greater number of people. But I think in both instances, it might be helpful for us not to put too much emphasis on the, on the idea of revolution, but on the idea of the coexistence of different kinds of technologies and different kinds of media. So certainly in the early modern period, even with the introduction of print, manuscript remained a really important way to circulate particular kinds of knowledge. People might decide to uh, circulate information in manuscript because they wanted to limit the audiences that were able to access this particular kinds of knowledge. And we can't forget that, of course, in the early modern period, oral culture was still incredibly important. There's always a danger of thinking that just because a new technology is introduced to other technologies might become obsolete. And I think both in the introduction of the printing technology and also the introduction of new media as ways to communicate knowledge, um, in both these instances, we can think about um, the overlap of different kinds of technologies that are being used at the same time. I mean, so in a way, the internet and digitization has... It's not only changed our way of, ways of learning, but it's also, to some extent, democratized knowledge. So the fact that, that many different people can access these resources and also change them and share them. So looking at the other side of the coin, the politicization of knowledge, uh, not only on the internet, but also historically. Matthias, in your research, you've looked at a book which you have here called The Handbuch der Biologischen Arbeitsmethoden by Emil Abdehalden. First of all, can you describe these books? Yeah, um, so these are just two volumes from a book that has 107 volumes, and uh, they are classical books, hardcover with not leather, but uh, some leather substitute binding and golden, deep golden print. That's one of the volumes, and the other volume looks very different. So if you would find these two like uh, on a garage sales, you wouldn't think they are part of the same book project because the other one is uh, just bound in paper and it looks more like a brochure or something. And this just illustrates to you that these bigger handbook series, reference handbook or, or encyclopedic handbooks, they were uh, sent out in what's called Lieferung in German, deliveries, uh, separate deliveries. It, of course, stretched over years. And if you think of it, it's almost like a periodical, right? It's not like the one book that it's out and then it's there, but it develops over time. 
And uh, often people would have a subscription and then they would get these brochures and then they would uh, give them to the book binder and bind them. So this massive uh, amount of bound tomes of books is something that only develops. It's not ready-made. And uh, it just shows you, um, interestingly, how the book, even after it's written and printed, has something of a life of its own. It has a rather controversial history. Can you also tell us a bit more about that? I found this Handbuch der Biologischen Arbeitsmethoden, that's the title, so the Handbook of uh, Biological Methods of Working, as a literal translation, I, I found it an extremely impressive case for a handbook. It was published from 1918 or 19 to 1939, so you can already imagine where this falls into. And uh, the editor is uh, Emil Abdehalden, who is a controversial German or Swiss-German uh, life scientist who was also involved in eugenics. Um, <clears throat> that's, of course, why it, it is something that is difficult to look at. But the interesting thing is that he had this idea of bringing all kinds of methods from biology together. What you find in there is uh, it starts with laboratory methods that we may think of, but then we go like how to observe birds migrating and even up to uh, legal studies. So uh, forensics, all kinds of things are in there. So it's, a, it's also an interesting concept of biology, right? Um, he's like a Hoover um, like a vacuum cleaner going through the country and sucking up all kinds of manuscript. But then he also has this idea of bringing them into an order, or at least he shows he wants to show it to the outside that he does. I don't think it really works in the end. And maybe one last uh, sentence on the political dimension of this. When he started this in 1918, you imagine the situation of Germany, which had just lost a war and which had also consequences for science, of course. And so this was also a project for him to reassemble German language science. So it's a nationalist project at the end of the war, showing, showing the rest of the world that he thinks there are such great resources in this country still and so on and promoting German language science, which has been noted by people from the outside, which thought this is like a Teutonic uh, monument. And it's actually not so good because... <laughs> The sentences are too long, there's too much text, it's one-directional in there that ignores foreigners not writing in German and so on. So um, these critiques are also interesting um, because they show you in how far this was considered a political project. And then of course much more after 1933 when people couldn't publish in there anymore or weren't allowed to publish. But the interesting thing is also that some people for example, Jewish scientists who had to emigrate, their manuscripts were still published in this book afterwards because they were already written or handed in. So this is not to say that he wanted to promote them or anything like that, but it documents how the political changes map on the changes in the publication and so on. On the topic of, of handbooks and their political and uh, social context and, and the way that they're sort of connected, that makes me think also about where this reliable information might come from. I mean, you both mentioned all these different sources of knowledge. So places that, such as TikTok, there's Twitter, there's Instagram, there's all of these different forms of knowledge that are out there. How do you think people are going to identify what's reliable? Yeah, yeah. it, it, seems, um, it seems a new situation with, uh, with videos. I mean, we did have lots of 
techniques around for textual media, right? We knew about publishers, for example. <laughs> We know which, which, what is a good publisher and what is not such a good publisher or a good newspaper and not such a good newspaper or magazine. And it seems like, of course, this is all up in the air. Uh, and the sheer amount of things coming in from all directions and the fact that anybody can self-produce and self-edit, of course, makes this much more complex than it ever has been, probably. The other face of the coin might be that as we do it, um, at the moment, we also see the artifacts of such structures not being around, right? In the case that um, things are just being Uh, clicked on because other people have clicked on them so because they rank higher and that of course creates uh, artifacts that everybody uh, knows and that that are difficult to counter i mean not that such things haven't happened in the scientific literature as well it's called the matthew eff uh, effect in that like like the biblical quote can't say it properly in english those who have will be given more or something like that so this this is an artifact of of uh, any usage of media probably but one that is uh, much more much more pro um, prominent in algorithmic driven media so i think that um, notions of reliability and i think that when we think about reliability we need to also think about authority that this in a way has to be constructed. So I think here, um, experiential knowledge is really important, which is why the video format is really helpful. Um, so in the way the, the video format are representations of personal firsthand experiences of people testing or using particular methods or protocols. Um, and they also allow us to think that we're actually um, observing these particular way methods of doing things um, in first person, as it were. And I think this is what makes the video format so compelling. But there's another thing that I found really interesting when we're thinking about reliability is, have you guys read all the newspaper reviews about TikTok and Instagram videos? I think The Guardian has been doing some of this. So, you know, like Instagram hacks or Instagram products. And then they actually have now newspaper, they send newspaper correspondents out to test all of these products. So I think that um, in a way, as a society, we're also moving towards developing, I guess, structures or protocols to test um, instructions and products that are presented on new media, which I think is really fascinating. A new move, as it were. This is it for today. If you like what you just heard, we'd love your support. Click the subscribe button, recommend us to your friends and colleagues, or give us a thumbs up in your favorite podcast app. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere else you can listen to podcasts. Science Social is produced by the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. Music by Poddington Bear, then I'm the host, Stephanie Hood. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at, at MPIWG. And most of all, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.